From WAMU 88.5 in Washington, this is Metropocalypse. I'm Martin DeCaro. The people have spoken. The people want late-night trains. Proposed cuts are disgraceful. Metro after safe track. Questions of fairness and equity. Plus, two track inspectors were nearly killed by a speeding train. And we'll take a ride through Tyson's Corner with a Northern Virginia congressman. Plus, step back, doors closing. DC United is back in the playoffs, and Coach Ben Olson offers his Metro announcement for fans of the black and red. All right, let's be honest. You're heading to RFK, it's going to be a long ride. Leave an hour early, drink some beers with the bar, Brava, and Screaming Eagles. Vamos United, vamos a Metro. Metropocalypse episode 20 starts now. The DC Metro uh, historically has been a great strength of this region. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Yo, quit blocking the door. Yo, quit blocking the door. This is not rocket science. This is a, a functioning rail system that can be improved. Safe track is causing widespread pain, and the pain won't totally subside when safe track ends. And it may not be spread evenly either. Metro's post-safe track future is starting to come into focus now. And for some folks, it's not looking very fair. Consider these two issues. One, whether trains should run after midnight on weekends again. And two, a bizarre scenario floated by management to potentially close certain rail stations during off-peak hours, many located in predominantly African-American neighborhoods east of the Anacostia River. So just about everyone with a stake in Metro has an opinion on whether the Transit Authority should restore late-night service 12 a.m. to 3 a.m. Friday and Saturday nights. Most of professional Washington, if they're out late partying, can also afford to take an Uber to get home. But if you work at one of those bars, or if you're on the late shift at a hotel or a hospital, and you're making $11.50 an hour, the new normal isn't working. Metro held a nine-and-a-half-hour public hearing, the only chance for riders to address in person the system's management, and overwhelmingly they pleaded for the return of late-night trains when Safe Track ends next spring. Here are some of their voices. Slightly more than 40% of hospitality employees commute into the city primarily by Metro Rail. People that fix your food at the fine dining restaurants that you go to. Who will do that when, pe- when these people won't be able to even access these jobs anymore? Will you guys have to take off your suits and your dresses and, do, and cook and clean yourselves? Because that's what's going to end up happening because many people are going to be stranded and they are going to be unemployed. For many people, off-peak service is luxury. You know, people use it to go to shows. People use it to go to bars. But for people in my community, It's access to their livelihoods. Transportation is opportunity. I asked General Manager Paul Wiedefeld if his proposal to permanently cut late-night service is marginalizing low-wage workers. They're not. I think, uh, again, look at what we're up against and what what makes sense. You do look, obviously, at one of the factors you look at is, is usage. I mean, it, it just, it, you know, I think that makes common sense you would do that. doesn't mean that their trip isn't just as important as the person at 9 in the morning or 5 in the evening. That's not what I'm saying. But when you look at the, the volume of people that we will be impacting, it's just different. Now, Wiedefeld says he can live with a compromise, keeping the system open until 1 a.m., That won't help a bartender or a kitchen staff whose shift ends at 2.30 in the morning. Stay tuned on this one. The board of directors will vote on a new service schedule as early as December. (music) 
The other big equity issue isn't even a formal proposal yet, and it came out of nowhere. It was presented as part of a PowerPoint deck at a Metro board meeting recently, and it immediately, well, it enraged people. Shutting down 20 low-ridership rail stations during off-peak hours. Ten are east of the Anacostia River. Again, that's a place with a lot of people who don't have many options, get across the river and into work. Greg Rett spoke on their behalf at that marathon public hearing. He held a sign saying, Ward 7 Lives Matter. It's not just about riders. We have hundreds of housing units, affordable and market rate, online, coming online, within the next year or two. The biggest selling point is access to public transportation. You all have potentially destroyed any economics that we could revitalize our community. Now remember, that hearing was about the late night trains, but some riders see all these proposals or potential scenarios, shutting of stations, higher fares, service cuts, as part of the same issue, whether Metro will continue to be there for them after SafeTrack. And all these debates are raging while Metro is dealing with yet another safety lapse. Two federal track inspectors were nearly run down and killed last week when a train sped into their work zone near the Reagan National Airport stop. It was the latest in a series of close calls in which trains have sped into work zones despite the presence of workers on the tracks. Now, there are rules in place here. The speed limit is 10 miles an hour when there are workers on the tracks, and the train operators are supposed to know that. This train, according to our sources, was going at the usual speed, around 50 miles an hour. One of the workers, in his haste to clear the tracks, tripped. His life was saved by the other inspector who physically pulled him out of the way. Now, this incident remains under investigation, but we looked at the publicly available inspection reports that the FDA has been posting online. In July and August, there were six other dates where trains violated this 10-mile-an-hour speed restriction. And in some of those cases, yes, the workers had to get out of the way. So this is another of many safety problems Metro is dealing with right now. Both the FTA and Metro are investigating. When we continue, we head out onto the rails with a member of Congress whose district in northern Virginia includes some of those low ridership stations that could close during off-peak hours in that bizarre cost-cutting scenario. This month at WAMU, we're lifting our voices to shine a light on black changemakers throughout American history. Some you know and some you don't, but they all change the world. Hear the stories of these incredible scientists, activists, artists, and more throughout February on WAMU 88.5 and streaming at WAMU.org. Again, at Tyson's Corner Metro Station, beautiful and new, new meaning two years old, overlooking Chain Bridge Road during morning rush hour and the ever-changing skyline here in Tyson's Corner as new development rises up around the four new stations built in this urban landscape. And we're joined on the podcast by Politico Pros, Lauren Gardner. Welcome back to the podcast. It's been a bit. Thanks, Martin. Lauren, uh, before we get on a train. I think we're going to be meeting someone here. Is that correct? 
I believe so. Um, sir, who are you and what are you doing here? My name is Jerry Comey and I'm just a citizen who wants to ride Metro today. <laughs> well, let, let's join the masses, sh right. shall we? You know, Congressman Connolly, thanks for being on the podcast. Uh, quickly before we board, uh, your thoughts, safe track. There have been a number of safe track surges, single tracking shutdowns in Virginia. Well, How do you think it's going? I, I, unfortunately, it seems to be a necessary evil because of the lack of maintenance uh, over the last decade. And that's, this is the price you pay, unfortunately, if you allow maintenance to be neglected and, and build up. I continue to believe that the problem with Metro is not just about things to be fixed or replaced. I hear a train. It's, it's also about service and the quality of the workforce. I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I do hear a train. Maybe we should hustle. All right, we made it. We're on the train. We're taking off. Okay, so I want to talk to you about a couple of things that have uh, arisen in the last couple of weeks. And, and you're, I'm sorry, but you're on a line. I spent 19 years of my life fighting to get. We wanted to talk to you about that, Lauren. Yes, we did. So right now we're heading towards McLean Station, which was one of the stations suggested for maybe being closed during off-peak hours as a potential cost-cutting measure in a slide that was floated last week during a Metro board meeting. Not a formal proposal, but there were three stops on the brand new Silver Line that were included in that. What are your thoughts? I'm not enthusiastic. Um, we need to give the Silver Line time to take root. And remember, there's a lot of redevelopment going on, creating a lot, a lot of uh, new potential customers for Metro here in the Dulles Corridor. So I, I think that would be a very self-defeating move if you want to attract new customers. Remember, we're going to go from 17,000 people living in Tyson's to 100,000. That's a big, big number. Uh, and, and that means a lot more potential customers for Metro. So closing stations and denying service is, to me, self-defeating in the long run. Like you said, you spent a, a long time fighting for the money to build the Silver Line. Given what you're seeing now with Safe Track and the maintenance issues, was that money well spent? That's a false question, Lauren. You're talking you're mixing capital and operating. The building of the Silver Line had nothing to do with the operations of Metro. I think the point is we were expanding the system while the existing system was left to decay. Yeah, but again, I think that's a false question. I mean, so I only have one choice. I gotta pick one. That's nonsense. And we're a growing region, we have to do both. We have to walk and chew gum at the same time. We have to maintain the system and make the necessary operating investments to maintain that system. And we also have to grow the system. On the other side of the rail system, Lauren mentioned three Silver Line stations that were floated as potentially being closed during off-peak hours. There are 10 stations on that map that was floated a couple weeks ago east of the Anacostia River in predominantly African-American neighborhoods, uh, raising questions about transportation equity and civil rights. You already talked about we can't be shutting stations down during the middle of the day, but shutting 10 east of the Anacostia River raises a whole other range of issues, doesn't it? I think it does. And again, I, I, I mean, to even be talking about that, I think is to declare failure. I mean, how, how do we get the system healthy and up and running again? and safe and reliable. That ought to be the question, not about how do we shut down parts of it because we've already conceded we can't really achieve those other goals. And uh, I understand the financial uh, pressure on Metro, 
but the, the more we see a decline in service, the more naturally you're going to see a decline in ridership, at least for those who can elect not to ride. Some people have no choice. And uh, especially those people east of the Anacostia, I, I, that could have a devastating effect in those communities. So everyone's looking at Congress to help out here. So for the record, Congressman Connolly, what do you think Congress's burden should be on the operating side? I believe the federal government is a deadbeat dad when it comes to operating subsidies. There are four compact members, Maryland, Virginia, D.C., and the federal government. Three of those four pay operating subsidies every year. Only one of those four pays no operating subsidies, and that's the federal government. And the figure I've heard is if we paid our fair share, like, you know, a compact member, it would be something like $300 million a year. Well, that won't solve all of our problems, but it sure will stabilize the finances of Metro and put downward pressure on the need for fair increases and for uh, increases in operating subsidies from the other remaining three compact members. So the biggest uh, beneficiary every day of Metro is the federal government, and that doesn't even take into account the burden we face as a region in incorporating 20 million visitors, many of whom use Metro, and, and it's local taxpayers who are subsidizing those rides, not the federal government. So infrastructure investment has been a very buzzy topic this campaign season among people running for Congress and people running for president alike. Given that the political makeup in the next few years is still probably going to be relatively similar, give or take a few seats here and there on either side of the aisle, still likely a politically contentious environment, how do you think, do you think Metro can rise above the fray and make, make its case to the federal government for more money? The likely president-elect, Hillary Clinton, has indicated that the first two topics she wants to try to put before us in, in her administration will be infrastructure investment and immigration reform. I welcome that, and I think uh, especially the infrastructure investment piece can actually win bipartisan support, broad bipartisan support, as we saw in the transportation bill that everyone said we couldn't get done, but we passed it. I was a, a country in that, uh, that bill, and um, we, we got a big bipartisan vote for a five-year transportation plan that everybody said we couldn't do. So I think the appetite is growing for uh, the need uh, to recognize the need for and support for uh, infrastructure investment. So I, I would fold Metro into that as a major piece of that in our region. When Metropocalypse continues, some of Metro's biggest defenders in Congress have left. So who will stand up for the region's transit commuters moving forward? Plus, DC United is back in the playoffs. Coach Ben Olson offers his version of honest Metro announcements. This is the Metropocalypse Podcast. Lauren Gardner is a reporter with Politico Pro. Jerry Connolly is a Democratic member of Congress representing Northern Virginia. Let's return to our ride on Metro's Silver Line. Now, when, when it comes to the region's membership in Congress pushing for these kinds of things, you take a look at the Appropriations Committee, and there are no longer any members from the immediate D.C., Maryland, Virginia, well, we, D.C., that's, Metro Dutch area. Riversburgers. That's Rupert's Burger is on there. Yeah, it's a little further out. Yeah. 
but he but he's supportive. Right. I'm in touch with him all the time. But you're losing Senator Mikulski. We've lost Congressman Moran, who were big and boosters, Wolf. and Congressman Wolf. Yep. Are you concerned about that going forward? That that could be a potential downside to your push for more money, not having that representation as robust as it's been. Yes. Do you want to be an appropriator? No. Uh, well, two one-word answers from a politician <laughs> on the podcast. I'm running for my fifth term. I've got eight years of seniority on the committees I'm on, both of which are very vital to my, this region and to my district in particular. Um, you know, IT, federal employee issues, federal contracting issues, uh, are the bread and butter of the Oversight and Government Reform Committee. I'm the ranking member and could be the chairman of the Government Ops Subcommittee of that committee. So I, I can't leave. I mean, that would be, I think, irresponsible. Um, it's too late for me to build in seniority and appropriations, because you'd start like a freshman. Mm -hmm. And it takes a long time to get seniority. Ask Jim Moran that, how long it took him to become a subcommittee chair. We're at East Falls Church. Let's keep talking out on the platform for a no couple delay. minutes. <laughs> yes, we got here. Although the, the train was rattling. All right, you're no longer trapped on the train, but if you try to make I didn't feel trapped, Martin. I felt like I was in a sumptuous <laughs> rail car, reminiscent of the old Pullman days. And if you, we were so, on a 1000 series car. That's right, we were on car number 1215. So we started our conversation talking about equity, fairness, and having a more robust system, not the scaled back rail system that we've really had since the beginning of the decade when the major track work started under General Manager Richard Sarles. The issue of late night rail service is coming up again. And folks who say Metro needs to go back to running trains after midnight say it's an issue of fairness and equity for low-wage low workers who are among the only ones who still rely on the train at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. What's your position on that? Should the Virginia members on Metro's board of directors vote to return to 3 a.m. trains on weekends? Well, I, I think it's a fair question. And, and here we go again, talking about how we're going to cut back service. So we're going to scale back service. We're going to close stations at certain hours of the day. Uh, and of course, that has the inevitable result of ridership fall off. And more broadly, growing collapse of public confidence in the reliability of the system. We've got to reverse that. Um, the but the general manager. The answer isn't in service cutbacks. That may be a short term tactic to get to a long term goal of restoring reliability and stability to the system. But General Manager Paul Wiedefeld, who you've spoken highly of, is saying essentially, listen, I was hired with a mandate to fix the system. We can't go back to 3 a.m. trains. Not yet. I think he might be leaning towards some compromise, maybe 1 a.m. trains. That still doesn't help the person who shift at a, at a hotel or restaurant ends at 2.30 in the morning. Yeah, he, he's got tough decisions to make. And again, I think we have to, what I was trying to get at is separate these into short-term tactical decisions to try to get us back where we need to be as a functioning railroad and long and then there's the long-term strategy of restoring stability I don't believe deep service cuts get us to the latter they do help us with the former so as, as if they're short-term and deemed necessary I'm not going to second-guess them but they do have consequences both short-term and long-term there were hearings on the Hill, a lot of talk among members of your committee, the Oversight and Government Reform Committee, of ways to help Metro or 
deal with the met with metro situation, financial situation. Have you taken the temperature of your colleagues more recently as to what they're thinking on this, or has the needle not really moved? We had a hearing that I think was a little unfortunate, where the chairman of Metro said some rather incendiary things. To Jack my, Evans. To my colleagues. Uh, and I understand and sympathize with Jack's frustration. But to actually say to a congressional committee, the next accident that happens, the blood will be on your hands, is quite incendiary. That and was not exactly what he said, well, but in so many words, he said, it's close. on you. Yeah, it's on you. He said, I will blame it on you. He threatened them. And that's just not, I don't think, a particularly winning way of proceeding when we're trying to bring people to uh, a broader perspective about the role and importance of Metro. And, and my colleagues aren't necessarily hostile to Metro. John Micah was kind of singled out in that hearing by the chairman of Metro, but John Micah actually has been a friend in the Bush years. He helped us uh, on Metro issues uh, in his perch on the Transportation Committee. So, I mean, we can reach members of Congress, and there are different styles. I, I prefer a more um, persuasive style uh, and educational style. I think longer term that wins more friends. Uh, but I, I, you know, I understand Jack's frustration, but you're chairman of the enterprise now and got to think carefully about what's the winning strategy on the Hill. Let's close on this note. Some believe that Metro may never catch up and get out of this hole. Reliability, performance are at their worst levels since Metro has been tracking these figures also at the beginning of the decade. We have some intractable financial problems, waning public confidence, and now talk of scaling back service potentially even more to help save money. Are you pessimistic or optimistic after I just painted that you know, doomsday scenario there? But are you, how do you feel about that? Look, I, I, I've been through some big uh, projects that seem doomed many times, the silver line being one of them, right? Uh, and it took 19 years of my career to get it from conception to completion, uh, phase one. And uh, so I, I've seen the ups and downs and the uh, trials and tribulations of getting anything big done. This is not rocket science. This is a, a functioning rail system that can be improved and can be brought back up to safe standards. But the piece that has to be addressed along with the physical infrastructure improvements is the workforce. We've got to have people who are better trained. We've got to have people who are more customer oriented. We've got to have people who actually love the mission and are committed to it and are willing to throw themselves when they see something wrong, they're going to make sure it gets right as opposed to filing a report and leaving it on the desk because their shift is over. That's how safety violations happen. That says something about the commitment of your workforce. Now, partly that is comes from the top. What kind of charisma, what kind of mission are you imbuing the workforce with? But it also comes from the quality of the workforce itself, and we're going to have to deal with that in an honest way. Most of the folks who work at Metro are dedicated to their, uh, their jobs and want to, want to see it right. But all too often, customers encounter uh, 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 an indifferent, if not hostile, reception when they have a need or they have a question, or God forbid, when they're in the middle of a car smoking on dark tracks and not sure what to do. And those incidents have been well documented. And they, unfortunately, have come to characterize how Metro 
responds to its public as opposed to being the exception to the rule. And I think we have to tackle that issue if we're ever going to get ourselves where we need to be. Okay, one more thing we're gonna ask you to do for us. We've been having a little fun, yeah, with um, what we call honest Metro announcements. Uh, members of NPR, like Ari Shapiro and others have done this, where, you know, what should that voice be saying? So, you know, you hear, ding, ding, doors closing, train will be moving momentarily. If Jerry Connolly was the voice of Metro, we're stopped, people are waiting to hear the announcement, what should that honest announcement sound like? Ding, ding, doors closing. And hopefully this will be the best Metro ride you've ever experienced because we're committed to the mission and we're committed to you, our customer. I said honest Metro announcement. <laughs> That's Martin DeCaro editorializing. That's my hope. How about that? That's my hopeful, honest uh, announcement. Uh, that's where we want to be. We thank Jerry Connolly, Democratic member of Congress representing Northern Virginia. So what is an honest Metro announcement? You're on the train, it's not moving, in the tunnel, and then the operator's voice comes on over the speaker system and says what? We asked members of the Metropocalypse Facebook group to share their versions of the honest announcement, along with a local soccer legend. What should the announcement be when there's a delay? How about, Metrorail is experiencing significant delays. Give up now and just start walking. Passengers, uh, there's a lot of buttons and switches and lights and stuff up here. Give me just a minute and I'm sure we'll be on our way. Thanks for your patience. The escalators are out at Spring Hill, Rosalind, and Braddock Road. But an escalator never fully is broken because it just becomes stairs. Step back. Doors closing. Hi, this is Ben Olson from DC United. Customers should expect extended delays and crowded conditions on trains and platforms. Yo, quit blocking the door. Yo, quit blocking the door. I wouldn't hold those rails if I were you. You know how many germs lie on those things? Bend your knees, lower your center of gravity, and try to balance without them. This has been Metropocalypse. Thanks to Ben Olson from DC United, and good luck in the playoffs. Thanks also to Metropocalypse listeners Ethan Handelman, Joseph DeGraff, and David Gray for sharing their honest Metro announcements. And you can share your thoughts, too, at metro at wamu.org. Metropocalypse is produced and edited by Brendan Sweeney and Joe Warminski. Andy McDaniel is our content director. All the music on Metropocalypse comes from WAMU's Capital Soundtrack. You heard tracks this episode from Sleeves Off a Vest, Wonder Church, Hugh Seek, Second Story Band, and True Band. Our theme song, Fingernail Grit, is by Poddington Bear. Thanks for listening. I'm Martin DeCaro.